Good morning, friends. There we go. I'm a little unprepared today. I only have one Luden's cough drop with me. So uh, I feel like I need to send the offering plate around if you have any on your possession and <laughs> care to share a couple with me. Just you ha- That's okay. I'll be good. <clears throat> I hope. Let me invite you to uh, open in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This is really only the second passage in the entire book where Jesus isn't the center of attention. Uh, Herod and John the Baptist really are the focus today. Um, Christ is mentioned, but he is not the main figure in this passage. Uh, And it's one of the only places in the Gospel of Mark where that is the case. So let me read our passage today, uh, beginning at verse 14 and um, going all the way through verse 29. And I think we'll be able to finish that without any trouble. So if you have God's word open in front of you in some form or another, please follow along with me. This is from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's, wife because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's inerrant word, friends, his authoritative word. May he bless what we've just read, and let's pause and ask for his help before we look into this further. Lord Jesus, we do uh, cry out for your help today. 
Uh, Father, strengthen us with grace and, and send your spirit afresh to quicken our minds, uh, to quicken our hearts, to hear your truth. Uh, God, work in us, work through your word by your spirit to change and transform us into your son's image. Uh, Father, quicken me with grace today, in my throat and my mind, Lord, that I would uh, preach your truth clearly. Uh, be with us now, Father, we ask through Christ. Amen. There's a special fund uh, maintained by the U.S. Treasury called the Conscience Fund. Uh, according to one source, this fund receives voluntary contributions from people who have stolen from or defrauded the U.S. government. The fund was created in 1811 when a New York man sent in $6 and said he was suffering the most painful pangs of conscience. Since its first year, 1811, the Conscience Fund has received over $5.7 million dollars. That's a lot of dough. That's a lot of guilt. Donations given to the Conscience Fund vary in size and reason. A nine-cent donation was made by a person from Massachusetts who had reused a three-cent postage stamp, while a person from Jersey City sent $40,000 in several installments of 8000 the biggest year of conscience settlement, no one knows the reason, was 1950 when over 370,000 came in. The largest single contribution was four, over 14,000 from London in the late 19th century. Another donor sent handmade quilts in an effort to settle her tax bill. Sounds like my mother. Most, although she always paid her taxes on. Most gifts to the Conscience Fund are from anonymous donors. Others are forwarded by clergy who have received deathbed confessions. But the sincerity of some of these donors uh, can, can be questionable, as demonstrated by this letter that read, Dear Internal Revenue Service, I've not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax Enclosed, find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. <laughs> so apparently there are a great many of us who suffer the pangs of a guilty conscience, and, and maybe even you today uh, suffer the pangs of guilt. So how do we quiet a guilty conscience? How do we silence that nagging voice inside that constantly accuses us of wrongdoing? That's what we uh, will discover in our passage this morning, and we'll find our answer uh, by observing four kinds of conscience in verses 14 through 29. I've also put these on the back of your bulletin. We'll see four kinds or four types of conscience uh, in the verses uh, before us as we look at this passage centered around King Herod and John the Baptist. Uh, the first kind of conscience that we encounter is a guilty conscience. As our passage begins, we find King Herod haunted by a guilty conscience. Three things I'd like to point out to you about his 
guilty conscience. First of all, we need to we need to see who the king is. There are three men in the New Testament referred to as Herod. Uh, so which one is this exactly? Look at verse 14. It begins, King Herod heard of it. Uh, the Herod that we're reading about today is probably not the Herod that you and I are most familiar with. We're most familiar with Herod the Great. That was the Herod who ruled at the time Jesus was born. That was the Herod who uh, ruled the whole land of Palestine for 33 years as a, as a friend of Rome. He's the one responsible for the slaughter of innocents that we read about in Christ's birth accounts. He's the one who murdered those baby boys in, in Bethlehem, trying to eliminate the one who was born king of the Jews. This today, this is not him. This is his son. Um, this Herod was the son of Herod the Great, and his name is Herod Antipas. Uh, he, he ruled part of his father's territory. When Herod died, his, his territory, uh, his whole territory was divided into four pieces, and Herod Antipas, or Herod his son, here in verse 14, ruled one of those territories consisting of Galilee and Perea. This, he's also known as Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, this is the Herod in verse 14, Herod Antipas. So first we see who the king is in these verses. But the second thing I want you to see is his guilt. And it is uh, pressing on him. You could even say he is haunted by a guilty conscience because of uh, John the Baptist's death. Again, 14... And reading further, King Herod heard of it. Um, we must stop and, and say, what is the it that he heard of? Uh, it could be what was referred to in verse 13, uh, the, the miracles that the disciples were performing, and they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod probably got news of that and of the miracles Jesus himself had performed. Uh, that's probably what he has gotten wind of. Jesus is now uh, publicly known. Uh, the whole region of Galilee has heard of Jesus by this point, including Herod uh, in his palace. And, and this prompted these miracles of his disciples and of Jesus prompted a wide range of speculation about who Jesus was. Look at what it says. Uh, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. The prophet Malachi um, announced that Elijah would come before the great an awesome day of the Lord. This was Malachi's way of referring to the ministry of John the Baptist. Christ himself refers to John as this Malachi. But verse 15 goes on, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Moses said that the Lord would raise up another prophet like him. Um, and so that perhaps is what they're referring to. That was in Deuteronomy 18. And that guess would have been a good guess and actually correct. But here's what Herod is convinced of. Look at verse 16. 
But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Look at his choice of words there in verse 16. He says, John, whom I beheaded. It's this, this is emphatic language. Uh, John, who I myself uh, beheaded. It is uh, an admission of guilt, as if to say, I am the one. I did it. And this is his guilty reaction to the news about Jesus. John, whom I killed, has risen and come back to life. It was their common belief that in the ancient world, if somebody rose from the dead, that person rose from the dead, and, and judgment was sure to follow. And so because of these rumors floating around that John has risen, Herod believes that Jesus is actually John risen from the dead, who has come back to repay him for ordering his execution and to bring judgment on him. Uh, so I say haunted. It is haunted in the sense that we think of ghost stories. Of course, he's not really haunted by a ghost. He's haunted by the memory of, of putting John to death uh, in prison. He is haunted by his guilty conscience. Dr. R.C. Sproul says that the single most effective way that God restrains evil in the world is through the human conscience. And this is actually described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2. Listen to what he says about the human conscience. Uh, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. We're talking about the Old Testament law. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul, that everyone has some innate knowledge of right and wrong, some sense of God's moral law written on their hearts. That is, uh, as according to Dr. Sproul, and I agree with him, one of the main ways God restrains evil in the world is through his law written on the hearts of mankind. They also have a conscience that reminds them of this moral law written on their hearts. This is how the MacArthur Study Bible summed it up. Um, I don't know who wrote this note, but I, I think it's a fair, fairly good description. It says, without knowing the written law of God, people in pagan society generally value and attempt to practice its most basic tenets. This is normal for cultures instinctively to value justice, honesty, compassion, and goodness toward others, reflecting the divine law written in the heart. Their practice of some good deeds and their aversion to some evil ones demonstrates an innate knowledge of God's law, a knowledge that will actually witness against them on the day of judgment. We hear uh, 
we have heard in the past years. The cry again and again, the cry for justice of groups who feel that they have been treated uh, unjustly, unfairly by other parties. And, and perhaps some of those claims are true. Where does that cry for justice come from? That they're being treated wrongly. That, that cry for justice comes from the law of God written on man's heart. You and I have the law of God in some form uh, written on our hearts. And we have a conscience that tells us whether our actions conform to that law or don't conform to that law. This is what's bothering King Herod. His conscience is telling him that he's done something wrong. He's taken another human life. This is what we see working in him. Uh, in verse 16, he is haunted by a guilty conscience, a, a conscience that keeps reminding him he has broken, got, broken God's law and stands guilty before him. This is a horrible feeling. I, I, I'm not sure if you've ever felt how dreadful a guilty conscience is. It is... Uh, uh, miserable. Listen to Charles Spurgeon describe the agony of a guilty conscience. He writes, I recollect the time when I thought that if I had to live on bread and water all my life and be changed, chained in a dungeon, I would cheerfully submit to that if I might but get rid of my sins. He was plagued for a long time with his sins weighing down on him. He continues, when sin haunted and burdened my spirit, I'm sure I would have counted the martyr's death preferable to a life under the lash of a guilty conscience. This is the first kind of conscience that we see, a guilty conscience that plagues many people and even many of us. King Herod is haunted by this kind. Well, there's a second kind that we need to see. The second kind of conscience is a seared conscience. Uh, we see this type of conscience in Herod's wife, Herodias. Uh, Mark takes us back in time now to tell us what happened. Uh, it tells us how John's death came about. Let me point out three things in this seared conscience. First, I want you to see the marriage that's involved here. Uh, Herod's marriage to Herodias. This is described in verse 17. For, again, we're going back in time now. Uh, this is what's happened in the past and describes how John was killed. Verse 17 says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Herodias was the wife of King Herod's brother Philip. Now, put on your thinking cap because I'm going to stretch it for just a minute. Herodias was not only Philip, Philip's wife, the wife of his brother, Herodias was also the daughter of a different brother, Aristobulus. 
So she was the wife of one brother and the daughter of another. Herodias was both Herod's sister-in-law and his niece. And it's reported that on uh, a visit to Rome, Herod met and fell in love with Herodias. And as a result, he divorced his current wife so he could marry Herodias, as well as convinced Herodias to divorce her husband, again, who was his brother Philip. And uh, they eventually married each other. This is the complicated marriage um, sordid, you could even say, marriage that presents itself. And then the second thing I want you to see is the conflict that arises from that marriage. Uh, a conflict with John the Baptist. Look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, remember what John's ministry was. He came to prepare the way for Israel's Messiah. And this involved calling people to radical repentance. Herod and Herodias would not have escaped John's notice because their marriage was a glaring violation of God's word. Uh, the book of Leviticus prohibited someone from marrying a brother's wife as well as marrying a close relative. So here's the problem. In God's eyes, this marriage is both adultery and incest. So John, uh, prophet that he is, calling people to repentance, confronted Herod about his marriage to Herodias, calling him to end his adulterous an incestuous relationship with her. This is what 18 implies. For John had been saying to Herod, and not just one time, but on a repeated basis, John in some form had confronted Herod. I don't know if he got in his face literally, but John became a real pain in the neck continuing to uh, bring uh, this uh, relationship to Herod's attention and pointing out that God's law did not allow uh, such a thing. It's not, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, let alone your niece. So we see that this marriage... Um, leads to conflict with John the Baptist. And now I want you to see uh, the responses to this. Uh, there are two responses, and the first comes from Herodias. Uh, notice verse 19. We see her response. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John, that is, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. While the human conscience bears witness to the law of God written on our hearts, over time it's possible for our conscience to become polluted, defiled, and corrupted. And this is what's going on 
in the heart of Herodias. God's word tells us this in Titus 1. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're polluted. They're stained. Literally, in its literal sense, the word defiled means to stain a, a fabric with some other color. Think of uh, dropping a red, brand new red t-shirt in with the whites. Everything comes out pink. And that's the picture we get of what's happened to Herodias's conscience. It's no longer white. It's, it's pink or black or whatever color, uh, color you want to think of. Her conscience has been defiled. In the spiritual realm, it means uh, that her conscience has been stained with sin. It's been polluted with sin, so it's not working as it should. There's another way. Not only uh, does the Bible say our conscience can be defiled, stained by sin, uh, the Bible also says that our conscience can be seared. We think of that, we use that term in cooking often, where we sear um, some meat on top of the stove. Listen to Paul describe this. He's speaking of um, uh, false teachers, and he's addressing this to Timothy. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Um, they, their conscience has been burned. Uh, sometimes um, things are seared uh, in a medical sense. Sometimes things, wounds are cauterized to stop the bleeding. In other words, they're treated with heat. And in a similar way, the human conscience can be cauterized or seared or made insensitive to sin so that it no longer feels sin. This is obviously what's taking place with Herodias. She holds a grudge against him. She doesn't want, she doesn't want uh, uh, reconciliation with John. She wants to kill him. But she's prevented, notice she's prevented simply by Herod holding her back. Paul also describes this kind of conscience uh, he describes it in Ephesians. They have become callous. That searing is like a, a big, thick callous. Uh, if you're a guitar player, you've got these on the tips of your fingers. Well, this is what's going on in the heart of Herodias. Uh, she's grown a callous on her heart, and it is not sensitive to her conscience anymore, not sensitive to the, her conscience pointing out that her activity is wrong. This is Herodias. What a gal. A, a defiled and a seared conscience insensitive to, to sin. And she responds to John with hatred because he is a threat to her peace of mind. Then we see the response of Herod. Uh, in these responses, first as Herodias, but then as we go on, we see Herod's response, which is quite different. Herod's conscience is much more sensitive than his wife's. Look at verse 20. For Herod, <laughs> this is really amazing to see the contrast between 19 and 20. 
the difference between husband and wife. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Maybe that's why Herod put him in prison, so Herodias couldn't get to him. Herod at least recognizes the moral authority of John's life. He'd probably never met anyone like John. Uh, someone who was not driven by lust like he was. Someone with integrity. It, it may have been superstitious of Herod, but Herod feared John because John's life was holy. Uh, 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 dramatic contrast to his own life, which was wicked. And Herod's conscience had not been seared or made insensitive to sin. As verse 20 goes on to say, when he, Herod, heard him, heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Your version might say disturbed there. Uh, it would be better to say perplexed. It means that Herod doesn't know what to do. Herod's uh, mind is, is up in the air. Uh, his preaching puzzled him. Uh, John, no doubt, is calling Herod to repent and leave his adultery and incest with Herodias, but he's still a slave to his lust. He doesn't know what to do. It comes across as a complete surprise, perhaps, but it seems that he is actually struggling with the decision of what to do. And he doesn't know what to do. But in the meantime, he is glad to listen to Johnny. He heard him gladly. So we find this conscience in Herod. It's not seared. It's still tender. The seared conscience is what we find in his wife, Herodias, who will kill John the first chance she gets. Well, so we've seen a guilty conscience. And then as we go back in time to hear what happened, we hear Herodias's seared conscience. The third kind of conscience we come to now is a silenced conscience. Uh, Herod silences his conscience and has John the Baptist executed. Again, I want to point out three things here. And the first is the party that takes place. Uh, look at verse 21 with me in your Bible. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And it starts off with an unusual phrase, but an opportunity came. Whose opportunity is this? What, is, what opportunity is Mark talking about? Well, this, this goes back to verse 19. If you'd look at verse 19 again, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. And then verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his, this is Herodias' opportunity. She sees an opening. She's, she's now wringing her hands with delight seeing a way that she can get rid of John the Baptist. Her opportunity came in the form of a banquet on Herod's birthday. Now, this is not the banquet like you and I think of with place cards and, 
you know, coat and tie affair. This is more along the lines of a stag party. This is going to get pretty rowdy before the evening gets through and as, the, as the participants who are the leading men of, of Herod's kingdom, as they get more and more intoxicated. This is the kind of party uh, where there was male entertainment, so to speak. And so recognizing this opportunity, Herodias then hatches the plot. Uh, she hatches a plot to entrap her husband, in verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. She knows exactly what her husband will fall for. So she sends her own daughter, Salome. This is Herod's stepdaughter. And she sends her to perform an erotic dance at this so-called banquet. This kind of dance, these are well documented, um, would usually be performed by a group of professional court dancers and prostitutes. But this was, again, quotations, a rare treat because the princess herself would be dancing before the king and his guests. And because of the sensual nature of these dances, uh, the character of Herod and his degree of intoxication, I'm sure that her dance was very well received. See, Herodias knows exactly how to trap her husband. She knows what his master sin is, and she plans to ensnare him through this. And watch the trap spring shut uh, as verse 22 continues. Verse 22 goes on to say, and the king said to the girl, here it is, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, takes an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Uh, his, her plot has worked and she has tricked her husband into uh, taking an oath that will cost him dearly. It's, I, I just want to pause and, and say it's possible that you're reading this and hearing this and, and you might come to the conclusion that this is interesting and even a little racy perhaps, but there's really nothing here for me. That would be a, a significant mistake. It would be a false conclusion to arrive at. Um, because Pastor J.C. Ryle points out how close some people come to Christ the Christian faith and yet miss it by yielding to one sin that masters them. Herod, think of it, he took pleasure in John's preaching. A tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Herod the Great's son took pleasure in John's preaching. But there is one thing Herod would not do. Herod would not give up his adultery. 
it was the one sin that had completely mastered him. And so J.C. Ryle, he's a pastor in England, he wisely gives us this counsel. Let us often look within and make sure that there is no darling lust or pet transgression which, like Herodias, is murdering our souls. Herod came so close, but he was ensnared by that one master sin. This was her plot. She planned this out to do this very thing. As we move on, we see then what happens to the prisoner. The consequences for John come in verse 24. Uh, this is Salome, the dancer. And she went out and said to her mother, that is Herodias, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Now I want you to stop and note how fixated she is on John the Baptist. Herod has just offered her up to half of his kingdom. Up to half my kingdom. And that again is a lot of dough. What does she want more than anything? She wants more than anything to get rid of John the Baptist who keeps nagging about their marriage. Give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Do it now. And look at Herod. And the king was exceedingly sorry. His conscience still works. He is genuinely sorry that his lust, that the sin which had mastered him would lead to John's death. And this now is the turning point for Herod. That next word, it's so crucial and so fatal, but. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod, who seems to have been, again, genuinely interested in John's preaching uh, and torn, actually torn between his call to repent uh, torn between that and his wife Herodias, he misses salvation and eternal life because he cares more about his lust and about what his friends think. He misses salvation and eternal life because he cares more about what his friends will think of him. He would be the laughing stock not only of Galilee. When word reached Rome, he would be the laughing stock of Rome. Pastor Ken Hughes offers this. How many people's consciences 
have been awakened to eternal things in their own sinful plight, and yet they have buried it all because of what they feared their friends or family or fiancé or spouse or fellow students would think. Some base their entire lives basing their decisions on what other people think. And this is the very thing Herod does. He silences his conscience. He silences uh, that part of him that enjoyed John's preaching. And he silences his conscience and John is executed. Now, there's one more kind of conscience that I want you to see. We started with a guilty conscience. We then looked at a seared conscience in Herodias. And then we've seen a silenced conscience in Herod. The fourth kind of conscience I want you to see is a quiet conscience. Remember, this is what we're trying to get to today. How do we quiet our conscience? when it nags us with guilt from our wrongdoing. And under this point, I, I want to point out that there are two ways to reach a quiet conscience. The first is Herod's way. We can quiet a conscience like Herod did. And to show you how he quieted his conscience, well, we've just seen him quiet his conscience, he was exceedingly sorry that, uh, for his rash oath. But because of his friends and his oath, he sent and had John executed. He silences his conscience. And then look at the outcome. For this, I'll ask you to turn back to our scripture reading to Luke chapter 20, uh, 23. You might have been wondering why we even read that passage this morning. And we read that passage because this is another time when this same man is referred to, except this time it's in Luke, Luke 23. And we're going to start in verse 6 and read a few verses here. And I want you to note how Luke describes Herod. It says, when Pilate heard this, now this is, um, of course, after the arrest of Jesus uh, after his betrayal in the garden by Judas Iscariot, uh, he has been interviewed by Pilate, and this is the event that comes next. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Ever since our passage, he's wanted to meet Jesus. So he questioned him at some length. But he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Please notice that Herod 
seems to be a different kind of man here. He is not like the man Mark described. There was no interest in what Jesus had been teaching, as there was with John the Baptist. There's no more listening gladly. There's no more sensitivity toward God's word. It seems that what he started in the last part, silencing his conscience, seems that he's been silencing his guilty conscience for so long that here it no longer bothers him. He is standing before Christ. And he does not seem in particularly moved at all. There's something different about Herod here. Something uh, completely unresponsive. Ken Hughes described it like this. He said, it is possible for a human being to be so jaded that he or she can stand face to face with Christ and feel nothing. It is possible to so squash the repeated warnings of conscience that it becomes as if dead. I, th I believe that's what we're reading here. Herod, Herod's conscience is finally quiet. He's been silencing it now for so long that he is not moved in the presence of Christ. But also of importance, Jesus doesn't respond to any of his questions. After all, Herod has been ignoring God's spirit and God's word for so long that he has nothing more to say to Herod. I... I pray that you think about how chilling that is. Herod's been ignoring God's spirit and God's word. We've seen him sensitive to those things back in, in Mark 6. But here he's been ignoring God's spirit and God's word for so long that God has nothing more to say. Jesus says nothing to Herod. That is a terrible place to be. When you've ignored God's spirit for so long, when you've ignored his word for so long, that he finally leaves you alone. And your conscience becomes quiet. Paul describes this in Romans 2. Uh, a similar thing that God does, he describes there. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Fine, fine. You don't want to hear any more? Then I won't say any more. I'll leave you to it. That, my friends, is judgment. That is a form of God's judgment. 
So this is one way to quiet your conscience. You can do what Herod did. Just keep silencing it. Keep silencing it. And pretty soon the Lord will just leave you alone. There's another way, of course. And this is the one I really hope you'll pay attention to. There is Herod's way and there is also God's way. And it is completely different. I'm going to turn now to Hebrews 10. If you care to follow me and join me there, this is where I'm going to read from. Hebrews 10. A few more pages to the right. And we'll begin reading in verse 19. Look or listen to what Hebrews 19 says. This is God's way of quieting a guilty conscience. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, He's referring to Christ's crucifixion here. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Did you hear that? When we trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, when we put our faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice, His payment for sin cleanses our hearts from a guilty conscience and cleanses our bodies from the pollution of sin. The guilt of your previous life that, that perhaps still nags you is at once cleansed and cleansed once and for all by Christ's blood that he poured out on the cross as the payment for your sin. It's been wiped clean. Listen to how Paul puts it. It's an incredible passage. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's a reference to your sin nature, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legals, legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All those things that you were feeling guilty about, all those uh, sins from a former life when you trust in Christ 
those former sins are nailed to the cross. And they are removed from you. He has cleansed you from sin. And you bear it no more. There is no record of your previous sins. It has been expunged, obliterated, uh, deleted, wiped out. And furthermore, any sin you commit after you come to know Christ will also be expunged from your record. I love that word. It's so dramatic. It's not just deleted. It's expunged. After Christ, our sins are removed as we confess them. John 1 9, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can, can, can you just stop and think as a believer how good you've got it? Those previous sins from your former life, any one of them, the sins from my previous life, I can't go back real far because I was five. Any one of them would have damned us to hell. They've been removed. And as his follower, now, when you sin, you will sin. I sin today, I hate to say. And I'll probably do it again. But I can go to Christ and confess it. And that too will be expunged from my record. Because of what Jesus has done. Your sin has been nailed to the cross. And you bear it no more. Your sin, not in part, but the whole. If you have confessed your sin to him, he has cleansed you from that sin. And I don't know about you, but I think God's way is a whole lot better than Herod's way. Anybody want to go with me on that one? Can I get an amen? Oh, thanks both of you for that. So how do we quiet a guilty conscience? Well, We've gone through four kinds today, and we've seen Herod's guilty conscience so because he had John executed, and we talked about his wife's seared conscience. We talked about the way Herod silenced his conscience, and he kept on doing it, apparently, so that he finally made it quiet. We can quiet it like Herod did, or we can, we can quiet it the way God prefers, and that's to cast our sins upon Christ on the cross and trust in him as our savior. So you might still have a guilty conscience today. Some of us struggle with uh, perpetual guilt. You feel guilty about everything. You feel guilty that people in Africa won't get a meal today. I don't know what I can say to you, but there are many of, there are many people like you out there. And maybe we could have a conversation about 
that kind of guilt. Guilt for things you've never done. Guilt for things people said about you. There's, a, there's just that kind of guilt. And I'm not sure of all the answers, but I know that it'll take you back to the cross. But if you're wondering, you know, if you have another kind of guilt, the guilt of those past sins, and oh my gosh, I've blown it. Can God forgive me? Well, the answer is he certainly can. And he certainly will if you confess it to him and surrender it to him. I'm not just saying confess it and then go right back to it. That's not really repentance, is it? That's not repentance at all. If you say, Lord, I, I turn from this, but then you turn right back around, you know, that's not really repentance. We turn from it and we ask him to cleanse us we ask him, as we read last week, to give us repentance that we can turn from it. And so if that's you today, I'd be happy to talk to you. But you can do it right there. Just as we close this morning. And whether you don't know, you've never put your faith in Christ to begin with and need to become a Christian, you can do that where you're sitting. Or you can talk to one of the elders. You don't have to talk to another. You don't have to go through anybody but Jesus to confess your sin. Or if you're, you're already a Christian and, and you know you've messed up and need to confess, we'll do it where you're sitting, right? I mean, you can do it right now. And quiet that conscience and ask God to still your mind. And know that they've been nailed to the cross and that Christ died for them and they have been expunged. Jesus, there's a lot of us here who struggle with guilt. In whatever form we're struggling with it, I pray that your gospel would affect our guilty conscience. I pray especially for those people here who might be trying Herod's method and, and just silencing their conscience again and again. And I pray you would stop them and speak to them one more time that you would not leave them alone just yet. You, they are here today because you are giving them a chance to turn and repent and work in them so that they will do that. Father, for anybody uh, here struggling with a perpetually guilty conscience, Take us back to the cross and let us see all our sins were nailed there. And that, Jesus, you have paid for them through your death. And I ask this, Savior, in your name. Amen.